0: Hello and welcome to the First Time Founders podcast, the show where we talk about how to take a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. I'm Rob Lyddiard, I'm an exited software founder, reformed corporate lawyer, and professional EOS implementer. EOS stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. We work with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial leadership teams to help them get more of what they want from their business. In particular, getting crystal clear on a vision for the organization, where a company's going and how it's going to get there. Getting people executing with more discipline and accountability in service of that vision, and then helping leadership teams build more functional, healthy, and cohesive team dynamics. Because the truth is, in startups, we can be a little bit chaotic and dysfunctional. That's what I do for a day job. But when I'm not working, I love to talk to other entrepreneurs about their experiences. And on this episode today, I'm speaking to Rob Smith, one of the founders of Slick. Slick's a disruptive, fast growing, platform for the hair and beauty industry. It does bookings, payments, payroll. It's a really wide product that's growing quickly now under Rob's stewardship. In this episode, Rob talks about what it's like to build for very demanding, low-tech users like creative stylists and building what is a pretty complicated product. Now, in this episode, the key insight that you'll get from Rob is that sometimes you've got to go slow to go fast. Got to understand your market, the nuances of the users that you're trying to sell to, so that you can build the right product and ultimately get on that exponential curve, um, exponential growth J curve that we're all looking for in the tech startup universe. So, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Rob Smith. Rob, welcome to the First Time Founders podcast. Thank you for doing this, my friend. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? Yeah, really good. Really good. Thank you. Um, Rob, let's dive straight in because you are the only founder that I know, or certainly the only founder that we've had on this fairly new show that does something as cool as working with creative stylists and hairdressers. We've had people running restaurants and boring B2B tech like my background. So I'm hopeful that this is going to be the most exotic episode so (laughs) far. How the hell did you fall into doing what you're doing?
1: Uh yeah, great question. So it all probably started when I um started learning French, uh, bizarrely uh, I've always loved France, uh so I did French at school, spent a lot of time out there skiing and then ended up doing it at uni. Um so I became fluent in French, worked in France for a couple of companies, a ski company, a furniture company. And then I was really keen to use my I guess my sort of newfound skill. So I ended up first at Renault, um so in the automotive industry, and then ended up at L'Oreal. So slowly, this story's starting to make sense. And spent uh, six years at L'Oreal in the professional division. So that's very much focused on the B2B professionals. So salons, barbers, spas, um, working on commercial marketing roles. And I guess great kind of grounding in some FNCG marketing, commercial. But it's a very, uh, very old school industry. Um, And as a marketer, it was quite challenging because you're looking to drive digital traffic, um, you're looking to drive footfall, both in terms of sub-service sales, so color sales, but also in terms of retail products. And because it's a very analog industry, um, 70%, 65% of businesses still use pen and paper, so they don't have online booking. So you're faced with this conundrum of well, how am I meant to be driving traffic when no one's got a website? I can't track anything because no one's taking online bookings. So how can I track if somebody's made a booking over the phone through WhatsApp, email? Like I can't. And so it was a huge challenge and a huge source of frustration. And you're 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 spending thousands of pounds on posters, and it's like this is 2020, and we're doing posters. Wow. Well, how how do we make this better? And I've you, you, so tried to drive a lot of change internally, but it's yeah, challenging because you're trying to try and move an entire industry, and so I ended up actually um, quitting. Went to Phillips um, and headed up their UK personal care marketing, so male, female beauty, and then just through my brother got introduced to my co-founder Steph, who was tackling it from a, a sub a different perspective on it, of as a female consumer working long hours, I can't book my hair and beauty online, I'm going to do something about this. Um, and she'd worked on the Just Eat IPO, so was looking at tech platform platforms, how they were uh, changing fragmented analogue industries, and saw, so, well, look, I want to do something, um, I'm passionate about hair and beauty, I'm going to look at this. Um, and we kind of got chatting um and so she kind of dragged me back into the hair and beauty industry um and that was where really house of slick was born and so it's quite it, everyone always laughs because she's got sort of the long beautiful hair and assume everyone assumes that she must be the kind of the hair and beauty expert and they assume that i must be the sort of the product <laughs> guy but actually it's very much role reverse one that sort of, uh, has that grounding in the hair and beauty industry and yeah from years at l'oreal so it's yeah it's been an interesting ride but it's it's been it's been great almost to come back and Use all those learnings to build something that really does work for the industry. And I think that's always been sort of the challenges that so many businesses have tried to tackle the industry and use almost an off-the-shelf booking system that does work for restaurants, or it works for other resources, and it doesn't have that flexibility that the creatives in the hairdressing industry need. Um, They are often, I think of them as accidental business owners. They've inherited a business from their mum, their dad. And they've been thrown the keys and they they're fantastic hairdressers amazing colorists real creatives but they don't always have the sort of strongest grounding in running a business and so you've got to build something that's hyper complex because it needs to cater for millions of use cases but you've got to wrap that in a ui and a framework that's very very simple to use because they are their owner operators the average number of staff is three four so they're tiny tiny businesses they're very successful businesses but they are the true owner operator. They're spending five minutes behind the till, twenty minutes cutting hair, then back behind the till, then cutting hair, then colouring hair, then cutting hair, taking a bill. They need to do a marketing blast. They need to then look at their inventory in place in order for their big colour house. It's they're juggling multiple tasks, and our kind of our challenge is how do you simplify that, remove a lot of that administrative burden, but then give them the tools to digitally grow, but also connect with their consumers. And the end clients expecting that digital experience, that ease of booking that we get from restaurants, hotels, flights and trying to bring that to the to high street so it's it's a very simple problem but with huge numbers of complexities
0: i bet they are so demanding as customer types like what um how close is what you're doing now to the original vision and how hard has it been um we're still very much
1: on the original vision which is a lot of businesses have tried to approach this with a marketplace angle Um, And if we create, get enough demand through our platform, we can then sell that to the salons and basically just drive new clients in. Our view on it is that your average person just goes, I don't know about you, but certainly I'm the same. I go back to my barber. I don't want a new barber. I just want to be able to book with them when I want to book. And broadly within the hair and beauty industry, that's the same. Your, your new your client retention is very very high. People have relationships with their hairdressers built over years. They don't want new clients. They just want a system to manage their existing clients. Um, so we've always focused on that so that SaaS and that fintech angle, and then payments, um, as opposed to going through the the, the sort of the marketplace angle. Mm. And it's really just been trying to build out the right features that our customers need and working very closely with understanding, well, what are your fears about transitioning from pen and paper? Why will you not offer online booking? What are your fears about online booking? What could potentially go wrong? And then building the frameworks and the flows that gives them that flexibility and that creativity, but gives them enough that they can do it, but not too much that things start to go wrong. Because It's it's very different from a booking restaurant. A restaurant has is a table, the table seat's four, you're booking that out for four hours or two hours. You're not pre-ordering your food. So all you're doing when you're reserving a table at a restaurant is you're reserving a resource for a set period of time. Right. If you are booking a, a colour, you're potentially book the the length of time will depend on your hair length, on your texture, your porosity, what service you're doing, the complexity of that service that will then vary between different staff members one staff member can do a full head of highlights in an hour and a half another can do it in two so depending on who you select then determines the time that's needed that also then determines the price so there's all of these sort of flows that we've got to cater for and we have to cater for them to cater for them in a way that reassures
0: them to then actually get on board with what we're trying to do and did you know um, it did you know it was going to be that complex from a product perspective going in or did that sort of dawn on you as you realised you needed to fulfill what the you what the customer would, would need and want from you um i think the, the product complexity is like let's be frank we're not putting people on the moon
1: here we're, right, we're, getting, yeah. we're getting people to book blow dries and colors like it's it is complex um and it's trying to the, the, the complex part is having those com- complex flows but wrapping it in a simple ui that somebody can just self-serve who's come from pen and paper who is yeah, they are scared about technology um and it's reassuring them that actually yeah we can cater for this we can design a system that actually reacts smartly so people from an online booking point of view they hate the idea of leaving gaps that's why a lot of barbers don't take Bookings, they do walk-ins because they want people to be booked back to back to back. There's no downtime, maximum efficiency. So we've built a system that essentially looks at your diary and goes, "Well, I'm not going to offer that slot because it would open up and leave a 15 minute gap. It would promote inefficiency. So we're only going to offer the client certain times that basically allows that barber to be booked back to back. That's it's complex, but it's not rocket science. But it's then actually explaining to them, and this is the ch- the challenging part, is a go to market is actually explaining to them that we have solved this kind of one of life's great mysteries. And yeah, we can, it does do what you want it to do. And they kind of, they look at you disbelieving and go, I don't believe you. You show them that. Oh my God, that's amazing. And it's that mindset change that's the hardest bit. And I think that's the bit that was probably we underestimated.
0: Uh, That's interesting. Even with a marketing background, right? That kind of, would you say most of your first time founder learnings were around go to market, would you say, rather than kind of product? Oh, that's interesting the product's been
1: is challenging for sure but the the hardest part is you've got their fifty five thousand hair and beauty salons in the uk 60 odd percent of them are still using pen and paper it's a mindset thing
0: it's how do, not... how do you like how do you can you just talk us through kind of the funnel that you've landed on i mean will you do you do like facebook do you do like social ads to catch their attention do you do outbound do you do everything oh. i bet you've tried everything over the years haven't you yeah, so we've we've been lucky.
1: We um, signed kind of commercial partnership um, with L'Oreal um, to act as a, oh, nice. as, as a as a lead source. Um, so that's we've yeah a lot of learnings there. Paid uh, works to a certain extent, um, but then it, your analog audience who are using pen and paper, they're not massive users of social. So mm. they're, they're not they're not there. Um, a lot of B two B SaaS uh, people we speak to will talk about LinkedIn. Most hairdressers aren't on LinkedIn. So running LinkedIn campaigns, just totally pointless. Search, again, people aren't searching for software. They're scared of it. So actually the most effective is, I mean, and it's sort of heresy to say in 2023, is old school outbound SDR. Um, and so it's, it's a com- for us, what really works is that combination of actually outbound SDR, but then also we have a regional field team and actually being getting out there going and visiting people on the high street it's not you have to be so careful that you're not um over investing you haven't just got people going up and down the high street where there's not an owner but actually where you're quite targeted having somebody walk through the door to somebody who is analog they want it's a human business you don't don't go into hairdressing to make millions you go into it because you love working with people and so when you've got when you're analog and you're being faced with a tech proposition having somebody walk through the door and go hey look let me let's sit down let me show you it suddenly it it removes a
0: lot of those sort of barriers um, did you do you, a lot more human did you do any physical cold calling back in the day oh yeah really how did you find yeah. that like did you find it Hard. horrifying or were you quite natural at it
1: um i wouldn't say natural it's a it's something you've got to learn but it's a great way of I think one of our greatest strengths is it's a product that is built almost by our users. Yeah. And so a lot of that early feedback that we sort of took both from a uh, sort of genuine uh, sort of user research, forums, et cetera, but also just stuff that you're gleaning from a core of, oh, no, I'll, I'll never use a system because of X, okay, that's interesting. Okay, could we build it so that we can counter that objection? Yeah, actually, that's something we've also heard. And you're piecing together different threads from existing users, prospects, people have outright rejected your category, not even your product, your category. And you're you're building up a huge knowledge base. We've got 8,000 pieces of kind of tagged feedback that we can kind of analyze and look at when we come to build something, what are people's fears? What are people's objections? And we can then build it in a way that works for them and it's often this is the compliment i often hear the most and is for me the greatest is when people say it feels like a hairdresser has built this or a guy said to me like you must have been a barber because it's like you're in my head everything i've really? been from the system it's here it works the way i would want a system to be made you might mu- you must have worked in a barber shop like, no we've just listened to our customer and that's why we've built a very hopefully intuitive Sticky platform that that does work, and you've got people that were adamant they'd never use tech and would always be analog, who are now using it and are growing their business. And that's the, the biggest joy that we get is you see somebody who's gone from pen and paper suddenly they're online, they're promoting their services, they're selling e-gift vouchers, they're doing everything, and they've got their life back. They're not having to respond to Instagram messages or WhatsApps at eight o'clock on a Saturday night about can you book me you on know, Monday. People are just booking
0: it, and it's it's the way it should be. That's awesome how long um for how long were you doing kind of all of the outbound or most of the outbound? I mean, do you still do any of that like walking stuff now, or do you like, cause some founders do try and delegate sales away very very quickly, don't they?
1: yeah, I'd say that's our that was one of my biggest learnings I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah maybe mistake um if I maybe go as far as that is probably stepping away too early interesting. Um, and we got in a great head of sales, who's very, it was very structured. Um, but I probably still wasn't close enough to it. And actually we ended up, I've come back in, um, because I think found it. I mean, people give you different metrics of, you should be found led sales until X million of ARR, I and mean, then you can do this. Da, da, da. I think everyone has to work out what's right for you, but I think it's getting to the point of, you've got that repeatable sales process but yet our products changing the whole time the uh, the environment's changing the whole time so there's new regulations coming into the industry the whole time so you've got to be on top of that and i think have you as a founder probably are closest to what what those true pain points are, um, what's going on in the industry, those success stories, and helping the team tell those stories. I think has been this sort is of the biggest learning. So yeah, I I still directly manage the team, um, and I think that will probably continue for 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 a good while.
0: Yeah, I I made the same. Like you say, I mean, calling it mistake is a funny thing to call it. So I agree with the reason you hesitated to call it a mistake. But I I think that what make it's clear in my mind now that I think about sales as a. Gateway to doing decent product management. If you're going to be the CEO or a founder of a product-led organization, like getting too far away from the customers, and like doing the odd bit of user research or something is just not the same, is it? As getting your ass handed to you from a cold call. Totally, and I I think that you've got to uh,
1: when you are, especially. It's one thing when you've got. I always think of this as we have to create category awareness and category consideration. If we can do that people will choose slick as a brand the biggest challenge is the category it's actually why should i use paper versus software you've got to make a case for why should people be using software first once we get that kind of mindset change suddenly it's okay well yeah i'll have a look at slick and our price point our support levels the product we don't do contracts we do the setup we onboard them it makes a very easy decision to choose our product but it's really a kind of category thing of A lot of these competitors were built for the big chains. Uh, They were built in the 2000s. And so these are enterprise pieces of kit, which are great if you're running 15 salons and you've got a marketing director, you've got a finance director, you've got an ops director, but they're not suitable for somebody who's got two staff,
0: one of whom only works three days a week. Well, how is the market <laughs> spread, Rob? Like, does so? I, I totally get like the individual barber. I think many of us will will experience that. Literally a single site, and we all know Tony and Guy. Let's say, yeah. Like, what's in the middle of that? Like, what does the mid market of salons look like? Is it is it common? Because like in in restaurant world, it's quite. You see new restaurants emerging all the time, don't you? And kind of growing and scaling, becoming sort of niche boutique casual dining brands. I'm not so aware of that in the hair industry, but is it like, do like what percentage scale, try and scale up?
1: Uh, very few. Really? Um,
0: so I think it's about
1: 90 odd percent of UK hair and beauty businesses are under five staff, six staff. Wow. It, it's the, it's the definitive. It's, I mean, it's it, one of our kind of advisors is ex Um, he helped them sort of scale an IPO and, it, the similarities with the kind of the fast food industry are very, very similar.
0: Um, it's right. You mean right like local eater. takeaways, right? Like, Lo- like the, exactly. The various takeaways. exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think for the,
1: the re- uh, it only came to me about a year ago. The reason that it's so hard to scale a hair and beauty business and have multiple sites is it's a creative industry. And so what I need to do is if I want to open a branch in Chiswick Cool. i need to find a couple of good colorists a couple of good stylists in chiswick if i then want to replicate that and have the same brand the same um look feel vision i need to find other stylists who then want to cut hair color hair in a similar way mm. and that's one thing to do it over two market towns um, like you and from essex so well, i'm going to have one branch in saffron Malden, one in Thaxted. but if i then want to have one in surrey one in hampshire one in bristol Everyone's got different ways of cutting hair. Everyone's got different visions of what a good hair looks like. It's very different to a restaurant where there's only so many ways you can cook a burger. Yeah, like I've, got, I, I've got a recipe for a burger. It's a patty. It's two slices of lettuce, not three, two. One slice of cheese that we all kind of buy on bulk. Like It's a very kind of precise, formulaic way of doing it, which you can scale. Hair, it's much harder to scale. Everyone's individualistic. Everyone wants to do it their own way. And I think that's why it's been so challenging for people to to scale. So it's a it's a very very fragmented market.
0: I suppose also that if you're a talented local stylist, like the only barrier really is being willing to sign for a lease and then some the fit, yeah. fit out as well, right? So I guess a bit like recruitment business. I mean, there are some scale recruitment businesses, but like it sort of lends itself to, yeah. to small scale entrepreneurialism as well. I can see why yeah. you're so attracted to and interested in the market. So. So it sounds like most of your learns, learnings have been around go-to-market. When you and I have talked previously, you've always been really generous with other founders about um, sharing what you know, kind of outside the outside the mainstream VC marketing industrial complex. Like, would you just mind riffing on some of the things that you've learned that maybe folks won't have heard on on you know on the big venture capital podcasts?
1: Yeah, I I think.
0: I think it, a lot of it is staying very close to
1: you know your market or you should know your market better than anyone, and I think I've we've heard a lot of people kind of yeah, try to apply parallels from different industries that we in theory should learn from. I think you've got to treat it with a pinch of salt. Um, it can some of it can be useful, but I think you've got to ultimately back your own intuition and your own sort of knowledge. But I think also. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of basic learnings that are out there that do get missed, like how to set up a, like a, the basics of like a good CRM system. Like, think about it, right? What do, what are you going to need in years time? What data should you be starting to collect? Like, if I'd been, if I know what I know now, the stuff that we'd been starting to collect on payments, you could have you could have built up a real ecosystem of, of data that you could be then using further down the line.
0: Can you get? Can you is, is there an example that's kind of that, that's in in your mind's yeah, eye at the totally moment as you talk about that? So we um, with Stripe we launched our
1: install payments earlier in the year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so massive opportunity both in terms of revenue but also in terms of stickiness. And our, one of our investors once have called us, um, sort of Shopify for salons. And so we are we ultimately provide everything they need: CRM, marketing, payments, e-commerce, online booking, inventory management, you name it. And um, Now, if we'd known that we were going to be, if I'd known the importance of data and actually having a really strong CRM, yeah, we could have started capturing in year one, people's payment rates, what providers making it starting to understand what the makeup of the UK sale and barber market looks like, what type of uh, profiles are cash only, because that still exists, what profile are bank transfer only, that exists um who's got the lion's share of the market what are their price points and you can start to build up that data very very early and again it sounds obvious and i think if you're a second time founder that's uh yeah you'll know that but if you're a first time founder a lot of this of the a lot of the vc kind of advice is almost much more macro and it's not yeah. actually that, that applied and i think there's a real often a dearth of applied learnings and applied Guidance that could be given, and almost as of yeah, as and when maybe if I do ever get the credibility to write that kind of so that go-to-market playbook, of these that's just the is sim, the simple shit that you wish you had learned, and that it's almost everyone thinks must it's so obvious that I don't need to teach anyone that because everyone surely must know that, uh, and everyone else is going around going, well, no, I wish I I wish somebody had told me that.
0: It's, um, it's pricing, so, it's price, so true price
1: pricing. Um, think about hiring. Um this yeah there's so much stuff that i think is is obvious in hindsight and i think a lot of people do overlook because they want to talk about something more glamorous and something deeper and something they sound much more intelligent because they've got a great point about x but actually a lot of it is just the basics do the basics really well and you're going to be you're going to be successful
0: it's interesting i completely agree with you and i I found that um a, a, a sort of related example to that. I I I really misunderstood the difference between delegation and abdication like early in my first time founder journey, and it was I think it was because it's very popular and lazy kind of fortune cookie advice that you hear to say, you know, hire great people and then like get out of their way. Like it's it's slightly more nuanced and it takes more time to say. Make sure you understand the jobs that you're asking people to do and rough, roughly how you want them to do them, so that you can be like ultimately accountable and responsible for supporting, making sure you got the right person and then supporting them and being successful in the role. Like kind of to do that, you need to know what successful is. Literally nobody ever said that to me until I'd spent three years not having any idea like why things weren't working exactly the way I expected them to in my, in my organization. I had to go all the way back to the root of like one of the roles, what am I expecting them to do? How do I measure performance or otherwise? And it's just not glamorous, is it? It's exactly the same as when you talk about setting up your systems of records so that it tells you like it's your cockpit for the business right but yeah it's amazing how much advice first-time founders get is just go fast and don't worry about flying blind <laughs> yeah exactly that like we we
1: um one of our uh, earliest investments was from l'oreal um and so we yeah they were keen very keen to to roll out so we yeah we went super quickly and we probably did we went to market far too early um, actually if we held back and had some sort of confidence in our opinions and actually sort of stood up against the big, the big corporate and said, look, no, we're not ready to launch. We need X, Y, Z, and then we can go to market. Um, we'd have probably been even more successful, but again, there's sort of, the hindsights, um, that you, you just don't realize. Um, and again, it's great to, to take that away. And that's the kind of stuff that you do want us to, to share. Um, because I think it's very easy you get money and you want to go and spend it all. And everyone's saying, oh, you need this, you need a great marketing person, you need this function, this function, this function. And yeah, there is a, a broad playbook for B2B SaaS or FinTech or D2C. But I think everyone, everyone's different um, and you've got to work out what your audience wants, who your audience are even, what is your ICP. Keep it really tight and think that again, that's where we've potentially slipped is not being tight enough because you want to you want to fish in a big pond. Whereas actually, yeah, often you want to fish in a in a quite small pond to start with. Um, uh, because you, you start to know your audience better.
0: I totally agree. So if you are angel investing, you know, say sometime in the future, and you, yeah. you 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 take on a portfolio of first-time founders, do you have any kind of sense of when you'd be pushing someone to to step on the gas? Because it does feel like a very European thing. I feel like in, in America, I used to think it was crazy that they'd put potentially millions of pounds into an organization with zero revenue and not put them under any pressure to generate revenue early on. It was only having rushed to accumulate revenue too early in my own journey that I started to see when it's not taken too far the wisdom of that. If you're if you're angel investing, like, uh, do you have any feel for like at what point you'd start to be uncomfortable that the portfolio company isn't accumulating really material revenue growth? It's um, a good question.
1: I think it's all about understanding what does what is your kind of product market fit look like and how does that intersect with revenue because you can start generating revenue from something relatively basic but then equally you could then be you're then pushing water uphill you could wait a little bit longer and actually build out something kind of more substantial provided you validated it knowing that you're then going to go quicker and i think that was the i guess that's what we did was we actually probably went a little bit too early and so our kind of our our revenue graph is just constant solid progress At no point do we have a real kind of sort of kick of that as that a classic hockey stick um and i think it's trying to understand that intersect between okay well what point does the product does the product get to a point where you can make meaningful revenue whether that's be whether that be pricing um commensurate with the market not underpricing um your conversion rates uh your top of the funnel awareness it's i think it's that it's that's the crucial bit
0: um for me yeah and actually i admire the fact that you did give a nuanced answer because here i am criticizing sort of industrial complex vc literature that misleads a lot of first-time founders and then i'm like hey rob can you just give a pithy one-line summary of when you should put on like put on the burners of building revenue but it's but it's hard because you don't you think that
1: that you think and we've seen it before you deliver x feature and you think right that's going to be the thing that really unlocks x percent of the market does it no of course not um and i think that's been probably the biggest learning is that again this is sounds very obvious but it's it's easier said than done is no one gives a flying crap about your feature it's it's the story you can tell it's the benefit that you can bring um and especially with um i think fragmented b2b people it, i often think of it more like in some ways b2c or d2c it's right. that you're building you're building a community people want to be using something that other successful people are using um and there is a there is a bit of a herd mentality and we see it of our about 30% of our inbound comes from organic referrals it's very hard to track oh, because wow. they are, they're in Facebook uh, Facebook groups or WhatsApp chats. Who are you using? Who are you using? I hate my current system. What are you? Who, any recommendations? Yeah, use Slick. They're great. We love them because of X, Y, Z. Um, and so there is that we get some real pockets of where we have 40 percent market share um, because actually we've got a couple of people on board. They then refer another couple of people, and you become almost the de facto choice for a business in that in that town that village um and i think that that gets super exciting but that's because of the it's not because of x feature it's because of the brand the community
0: that we've, we've built yeah um, it does take time for that to for, because that's not really something you can fake is it and so i think as no. a first first timers do have to be patient make sure that they're financially sustainable however they do that revenue investment whatever get their life in order to be able to take the time to get to the point where it starts compounding and starts getting fun. Yeah. And I think, I think you've made the right point of take time because I think it's very easy to, and
1: am very um, exciting to go and scale and hire a massive team, whether that be sales, whether that be customer success, whatever it might be. But again, you need to, it's what you said, you need to understand the role first. You need to understand what good looks like. And, um, and one of our one of our investors, um, he's a guy called Nick Telson. He invest He founded Design My Night, and he talks a lot about this of actually almost going a lot slower, mm. uh, both from a sort of from a product point of view, but also from a team point of view. Understand what your sales cadence looks like. Once you've got it, then you can start to um, invest. Then you can start to actually hire. Whereas a lot of people just yeah, put out right. We need four AEs. We need five four SDRs okay, do you actually know what you want? Do you know what the framework's are? Like? Do you know what the common objections are? Are you really clear on your ICP? Are you clear on your onboarding process? Because once you've got all that really clear, then you can turn you can turn up the dial. Yeah, I but completely the, the, agree. The, the temptation is to go, go super quick because, look, everyone sees these companies hiring, raising lots of money. You get the pressure from VCs, institutional, um, but often... Going a little bit slower, and I think that I think with the current climate, I think there is probably a bit more of a trend to let's build slowly, organically, more capital with more sort of capital efficiency. So I think there is that the trend is certainly pushing that way. But certainly, that's been my experience, and I I think that's what I would be one hundred percent advocating.
0: Yeah, I mean, the great mistake I made in ramping trying to ramp sales too early and then burning an an inordinate amount of the capital that I had on that. Was um, I didn't understand the difference between early adopters and, and the majority of the market. So I, I had a good pitch down for early adopters that were excited about what we were doing. There just weren't that many of them. They weren't representative of the market. So I sort of understood one subset of customers, but not really the um, the, the customer. But I, I I really hope people listen when they hear advice like that. To you know, don't be a wimp. If you, if, if it's working, then fine. Scale. But don't be bullied into rushing to scale if you if you don't get it yet because you might not get another try right. You might not survive if you you run out of money. No, if you if you've got money, like you're in a
1: great you're in a great place. And I think there's always, I think everyone's always worried that there's gonna be another someone else is gonna come and eat your lunch. There'll be another person that launches a similar idea. And yeah, sure there will be. But you've got to have confidence in your execution, your brand, the way you're going to do it. That. Yeah, that extra couple of months isn't going to be make or break. If somebody else launches, cool, so what? Like, we've seen, he, we take market share from companies that have looked, that have raised millions, like literally two, three, four hundred million. Um, we, yeah, stay in your lane, concentrate on what you do well, um, keep tight on ICP, and you, you'll be fine. Um, and I think it, it does sound very unglamorous. It doesn't, it sounds, in some ways, it sounds quite sort of defensive, but I think it,
0: Certainly in the current climate, allows to hopefully to build us a, a very profitable business. That's very cool and amazing advice. What's what's next for for Slick? As you look sort of one to three years over the horizon, like what what should people be, be watching? Because as they follow your stuff on on LinkedIn and story from the company,
1: um, so uh, payments
0: is a big thing for
1: us. Um, a lot of so sixty percent of the staff in the wider industry are sole traders; so they're self employed. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity around um, essentially revenue share payments whereby on a £50 cut, £25 goes to the sole trader, £25 goes to the limited company where but in which you are currently renting a chair and they have a revenue share agreement. And if we can, what we're looking to do is essentially automate that kind of that payroll revenue share. Um, so that's a big opportunity for us. Um, it's really building out the kind of that ecosystem. So currently we've got very strong product market fit for hair, barbering. Beauty is a big opportunity that's growing um, a lot in the UK. So we're looking to expand our kind of our ICP audience. Um, And then really, I think our our view is very much the UK market. A lot of our investors and sort of advisors have said the UK market is tough. If you can crack the UK market, you're in a very good position to then expand. And so for us, we could we could it's a sas product it's very easy to expand internationally we've already got a pilot in the um, uae but we could be in france germany in a month's time but again just keep tight keep disciplined and let's get to a really good point where we have some uk market dominance and then we can then go international um so that in the next couple of years that would be what we'd look to do um but yeah it's fragmented from a customer point of view. It's very fragmented from a provider point of view. So there's about 40, 50 providers all doing roughly the same thing. So it's a very acquisitive space. So there'll be a lot of M&A going on um, in the next few years, and um, especially as obviously capital dries up. So that's going to be quite interesting to see how that plays out.
0: That's awesome, though, to be like, okay, we're going to keep our head down. There's an amazing opportunity here. If we just keep executing, the you know, the, the next steps will become evident. There he is, the uh, the fluent French speaker, drinking his own champagne. Rob, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. If I know you're very generous on LinkedIn with other founders. If people are interested in what you're doing, happy for them to reach out to you there if I put your contact yeah, in the, the show notes. Behind-
1: 100%. Um, again, as I don't profess to know everything um, at all. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there are lots of learnings um, that I guess we've taken away. And if I can help anyone, then very, ha- very happy to
0: help. Amazing. We appreciate that. All right. Great to speak to you, mate. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers, Rob. Take care, mate. Thanks so much. Bye.